Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you happening across our broadcast for the very first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And that's where you come in. It's your questions on the Bible that make up the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. If you're a regular uh, viewer, uh, listener to the broadcast, you know uh, that we spend uh, the next uh, few minutes answering questions about the Bible itself, maybe some verses in the Bible you'd like to explore a little bit more up close and personally than you ever have before. We are also open uh, to uh, showing you how to apply God's truth to your life in an up close and personal way. Going through a tough or challenging time could use some direction straight from God's Word. Hey, share with us what's going on in your life. We'd like to share with you the time-tested truths we find in the Bible and the awesome difference that it can make in your life today. If uh, you'd like to uh, talk about uh, tough questions regarding the Christian faith, maybe a skeptic non-believer has lobbed a few questions your way, you felt ill-equipped to be able to answer them. Or maybe you've always had some tough questions percolating in the back of your heart and mind. Feel free to uh, get in touch with us. We'd love to be able to tackle those questions. As always, the only standard for our questions, pretty simple. If you're looking for an answer straight from the Scripture and uh, would uh, like to uh, get a sincere answer uh, and a sincere question uh, answered, uh, we will be more than happy to tackle whatever issues are on your heart or on your mind. Uh, again, uh, if you'd like to talk about the events of the day, and boy, we've got uh, a big one percolating here, or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, we would uh, be more than happy to tackle those questions with you. So feel free to uh, join on in. Joined here, as always, by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Sean, if people want to get their questions to us, how could they do that? Well, if you're joining us on our Reach Radio affiliates or other radio venues, feel free to email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like proper spelling of that at your own time, feel free to join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, that's spelled C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, and there we will not only be able to provide you with links and an access to be able to message us directly, but also for future reference, you can take advantage of our live streaming software on that website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. By clicking on the Watch Live tab, and at the bottom of the screen, as we are live streaming every single weekday, you can note and send your questions to us there. Or if you're able to join us live, feel free to, again, take advantage of the chat in that live streaming service as well. That will be at the right-hand side of the screen. Facebook and YouTube also function in a similar fashion. However, we don't control when or why we're taken down from those platforms. We want to make sure you join us on our website first, but if you prefer YouTube, it is a reason for hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If we still have audio, and if we aren't being again taken down, you can join us there. You'll be notified when we are going live, but if you ever run into speed bumps and haven't been given prior notification, know that our website will be streaming. They can't ban us on our own platform yet. The goal, of course, of the broadcast is to answer your Bible questions, so if they are sincere, they are questions, and they are about the Bible, not mentioning the Bible, but the substance of the answer 
answer you're looking for is from the Bible, we will be happy to address it for the next 55 or so minutes. But with that said, of course, we don't want to step anywhere without the Lord, of course, uh, directing our steps. So why don't we take a moment to pray? We'll get into our prophecy and polemics update and see where we go from there. Yeah, kind of a two-for-one there. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, that you love us. Thank you so much for this opportunity to explore your word together. We pray, Father, that in the name of Jesus, uh, you would guide and direct our conversation. We pray that uh, the people tuning in would be edified, their knowledge of your word would grow, they'd be exhorted, they'd find out how to apply it, and comforted, Lord, they'd be touched by the timeless message of your unending love for us. So, Father, thank you again for being with us. Uh, We pray that your hand would guide and direct and get this broadcast uh, into uh, the hearts and minds of each and every person you have in mind to join us. We thank you that we can give all these details to you in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, before we get into polemics, uh, of course, we always want to first and foremost keep our eyes on Israel. What's going on there? We, of course, just are not only coming off of another week in jihad violence where a preemptive strike was able to take out what exactly, given more information? Yeah, uh, just uh, some updates on uh, the uh, Operation Breaking Dawn, as it was called, the preemptive strike upon Islamic jihad. Uh, it has come out uh, from uh, IDF sources that uh, the main reason that Israel took this step was not just because they became aware that Islamic Jihad was planning a major terrorist operation against Israel, but that for the first time, Islamic Jihad was going to use a sophisticated Iranian-made anti-tank weapon against a civilian target. Uh, And so uh, Israel was not going to tolerate uh, that upping the ante in uh, the exchanges with Islamic Jihad, and so they managed to take out uh, 14 of their key leaders, uh, devastating a number of their rocket emplacements. Uh, The Iron Dome defense system apparently uh, shot down nearly 98% of the rockets launched out of Gaza, and really uh, the main damage that was done to people in Gaza happened from misfunctioning Islamic Jihad missiles or missiles that landed within uh, the Gaza Strip territory rather than their intended targets. So um, if you really want a great update on uh, all things Israel, boy, we sure want to give him a plug. Our good uh, friend Amir Safadi has uh, a great website called Behold Israel. He's available, and he does regular prophecy updates, regular updates on what's happening in the Middle East on his Telegram platform. Uh, That is uh, telegram.com, I guess. You can look up Amir's uh, name on there and follow him. I'd highly recommend you doing that. He's uh, really a great resource for events going on in Israel. All right. Now, moving on to, uh, I guess, interesting news from another angle. For those of you who aren't aware, at the time of this recording, an individual by the name of Salman Rushdie, for those of you who are around in the 80s, you know that name well, but for those of you who aren't, he is an Indian-born author and uh, basically a shock comedian of sorts. Kind of has the R of Monty Python about him, but up the... Tends to write uh, uh, semi-satirical comedic novels, yeah. With, of course, a uh, taste for the irreverent as well. I mean, so much so, he was even a guest... Uh, a regular uh, guest character 
on uh, Larry David's uh, HBO program, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, where centered he, around all the controversy. Yeah. In him. But, uh, of course, it's no problem at all when he uses uh, certain, I guess, speaking engagements to show slideshows of Jesus and homosexual relationships with other people. But when his sights were set on the religion of Islam, uh, of course, given his native land in India, they had seen just about as much brutality from Muslim expansion, believe it or not, as Northern Africa and Europe. But when we're talking about this issue, of course, we know that when satirical or even blasphemous content is produced in the name of Christianity, the last temptation of Christ would be an ideal example of that. What was the Christian reaction? Well, before we get to the Christian reaction, I think we should probably talk about what happened to Salman Rushdie well, the, today. The setup, I think, is ideal. Christians did, A, stab a man nine times, uh, some specific places in the face. Well, let me read the did, news report here from the Jerusalem Post about what happened with Salman Rushdie, and, and, and then we can, can get to that. Uh, according to the Jerusalem Post, Salman Rushdie, the Indian-born novelist who spent years in hiding after Iran urged Muslims to kill him because of his writing, uh, was stabbed in the neck and torso on stage at a lecture in New York State on Friday. He was airlifted to a hospital. The latest uh, reports that we had right before we came online uh, apparently have Rushdie on a ventilator, unable to speak. Uh, his uh, book agent wrote in an email that he would likely lose one eye, the nerves in his arm were severed, and his liver was stabbed and damaged. Uh, well, where does all this venom and vitriol come from? It was uh, largely going back to uh, the publication of a book he wrote called The Satanic Verses. Now, if you've ever tried to read a Salman Rushdie novel, and when this came out, I, I gave it a shot. Uh, his writing style is, uh, well, uh, some people like it, some people don't. I find it kind of obtuse in a lot of ways. Uh, he flips back and forth between reality and dream sequences and so on. And uh, apparently uh, in his uh, book, The Satanic Verses, uh, the dream sequence part of it involved a uh, picture of uh, or a uh, uh, depiction of Muhammad uh, and uh, in a, a particular uh, aspect of it, uh, at its center is an episode called the so-called Satanic Verses, in which the prophet first proclaims a revelation in adopting three uh, old polytheistic deities, but later renounces this as an error induced by the devil. That's where the term Satanic Verses comes from. Now, according to Salman Rushdie, uh, he was shocked at the uproar over all this because he thought that because it was a dream sequence and because uh, the way it was framed and the fact that this character was hallucinating about being Muhammad, uh, that it was very, very mild. But an individual named the Ayatollah Khomeini didn't think it was very mild. He issued what was called a fatwa against Rushdie. Now, what is a fatwa? It's a legal proceeding from an Islamic authority, which usually either clarifies a certain aspect of Sharia, or in this case, the waging of jihad, specifically the assassination of those who cause mischief in Muslim lands, or those who blaspheme against the Prophet, which is odd because you only can blaspheme against God. But the more you look into Islam, the more you realize they're one and the same. Well, once again, uh, this fatwa was issued, and uh, Salman Rushdie was forced to go into hiding. Now, the controversy about this really exploded uh, when a uh, popular musician by the name of Cat Stevens, 
who had converted to Islam, changed his name to Yusuf Islam, was interviewed uh, about uh, his views on uh, the satanic verses and the fact that in 1989, Rushdie was targeted because of his portrayal of Muhammad. Stevens, uh, on uh, a uh, live broadcast, said in a rather matter-of-factly way that he that the Quran prescribes death as the punishment for blasphemy. Confronted on a BBC show, Stevens was asked directly whether Rushdie deserved to die. Yes, yes, he replied without much hesitation. Uh, were Rushdie a marked man to come to him for help? How would he respond? With what he subsequently insisted was nuts, was nothing more than an ill-attempted advice, uh, attempted uh, dry humor. A straight-faced Stevens said, I might ring somebody who might do more damage to him than he would like. I would try to phone the Ayatollah Khomeini and tell him exactly where this man is. When asked whether he would participate in the burning of an effigy of the author, he repeated that he would instead hope it was, quote, the real thing. Well, <laughs> Salman Rushdie's comment on this was uh, rather droll. He said, well, it looks like Cat Stevens got off the peace train a long time ago. Yeah, so. or he got on the Islamic train and is taking his faith seriously, because according to Surah 47 and verse 4, wherever you encounter the unbelievers, they are commanded to strike the next, which this individual that had the opportunity to encounter Salman Rushdie as an unbeliever was struck in the torso and apparently also in the face. The region between those two would fit according to his Quran's instruction. Yeah, so uh, once again, uh, Salman Rushdie is in critical condition in a hospital in New York. Uh, the individual who attacked him has been identified. Uh, we're not going to mention his name at this particular point, uh, but he's been arrested. And uh, it's very interesting how uh, the articles I read said that according to law enforcement officials, the motive for the attack is still unknown. Well, I think it's, it's fairly clear what's going on here. But a couple things I wanted us to explore on the broadcast here. Uh, you know, when we hear the term a satanic verses, the average person says, well, we wrote a book about Islam calling it the satanic verses. Uh, why wouldn't you think that they would be upset uh, about uh, this sort of thing? You know, it's not the kind of thing you would actually get over over time. As a matter of fact, um, it, there's a, a fascinating uh, uh, article on the Reuters news service that detailed the events following Iran's fatwa against Rushdie. Uh, at one point, the Iranian government's official position was that although there was a $2.5 million bounty on the life of Salman Rushdie uh, promoted by the government of Iran, uh, that the government of Iran's official position was, well, we've just sort of decided to let this go. Uh, about a year or so ago, that position changed. And not only did it change, but they upped the bounty for the fatwa, another $600,000 for anyone who could kill Salman Rushdie. For the crime of reading something that comes from the Islamic sources themselves. So now that's uh, that's a, a an interesting detail there. Because, you know, for a lot of our, our uh, listeners here, you know, we hear something about the satanic verses and, and so on, and something associated with Islam, we just assume that uh, this is flat-out blasphemy. How in the world could there be satanic verses in the Quran? But according to Islamic historians, there was such a thing 
as satanic verses by Islam's own admission in the Quran, was there not? Multiple, and that's the whole point. If, of course, you don't uh, engage with Muslims enough and don't realize this whole book is satanic, these two are by their own admission. When we turn to Surah, or chapter 53 of the Quran, you'll read in it today, this is uh, my version here, Have you seen Alat and Al-Uzza, and another, the third one, Manat? Do you have the male, and does he have the female? This is an unjust division. Now, if you are reading the Quran just at face value, you'd note that is a very disjointed presentation of mentioning of names I'm not familiar with, and you'll find that's a common trend in the Quran. But interestingly enough, in the footnotes, which are noted in most of the Qurans that are available today, you're going to note that there is a foot, or there is a uh, addendum noting that the original verses following verse 20, following after the mention of Manat, these are the exalted cranes, or intermediaries, whose intercession is to be hoped for. And if we go to the Islamic sources that would commentate on this, we not only have insight, this is what's called the Hadith literature, uh, the context, basically, of the Quran, we are given some insights into not only Muhammad's reaction to this, but why they were later dubbed as satanic. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Alat, Aluza, and Manat are of the many gods in the Nabataean pantheon. Nabataean were the predecessors to the Arabs. Right. They worshipped many gods, one for every occasion and opportunity, of which Allah was one of them. He had a wife named Alat, and he had daughters named Alusa and Manat. So when these pagan goddesses are acknowledged by Muhammad verbally, it was following a question from the pagans in basically them trying to reconcile with him. You want to worship Allah, we worship Allah too, but just other gods on top of that. Would you like to, and this was their offer, have us worship Allah exclusively? for one year, and then you can worship our gods another year. Would that be sufficient for you? And instead of being the paragon of virtue that Muhammad is made out to be, he said, I'll check on that. And after another revelation where he went into a fever pitch and a seizure, he said and revealed these verses. And the pagans, uh, basically celebrating the fact that Muhammad was allowing the worship of their gods and acknowledging them as intercessors who could bring your prayers to Allah, they all bowed down and honored the revelation and celebrated with him. They appreciated the compromise. Then it goes on to note that he realizes this is a fabrication, that Satan cast these verses on my tongue, that I'm a false prophet now. And, of course, Allah, in his great mercy and uh, consolation to Muhammad, clarified to him that all prophets are given the opportunity to make false prophecies from time to time, and that this is an opportunity for your followers to basically know that I'm so forgiving in this regard. This is Surah 22, verse 52. Never sent we a messenger or a prophet before thee, but when he, not if he, when he recited the message Satan proposed in respect of that which he recited thereof, but Allah abolisheth that which Satan proposeth. And Allah establishes revelations. Allah is the knower and the wise. Verse 53 also clarifies that he may take that which the devil proposed a temptation for those in whom's heart is a disease, and those whose heart are hardened, lo, the evildoers are in an open schism. So this is where the term the satanic verses arose. It 
first appears in Surah 53, verses 19 through 20, which has been removed from the Quran and replaced with what's in it today. And, of course, we have Surah 22, verse 52 and 53, acknowledging that these verses came from Satan, but that Allah causes his prophets to do this sort of thing all the time. It's just to make sure everything's clear. Obviously, we're rolling our eyes. That would cast out anyone in the Old Testament and New Testament standards as a false prophet forever. But here's the point. When you go to the Quran itself and verify it through the commentaries known as the Tafsir and the narrations, that is the Hadith, you'd note in full context that these things are undoubtedly something that Muhammad said, something that Muhammad did, and you not only have recourse to it in the Quran, but in Islamic history and authoritative religious history itself. For Salman Rushdie to popularize it was essentially them hand-waving and saying, don't uh, look behind the curtain, there's nothing uh, to see there. So when we look at Islam and its veil of lies that it has to keep its followers insulated in, you're going to find this more and more when you look into it, that Muhammad Dawagandist, as we take to call them, Dawa meaning their form of evangelism, will make up anything and everything they can in order to build up the Quran, that it's been perfectly preserved, right? down to the letter. Not a single syllable, not a single verse, not a single chapter has been changed in any way since the time from Uthman. Then you look at Surah 53 and realize, huh, it seems like before the time of Uthman there was a lot of editing going on because Muhammad couldn't tell the difference between a revelation from Satan and the devil. And in order to reconcile this, there is also a passage in the Quran that clarifies Allah allows Satan to send down revelations all the time, but he'll clarify it afterwards. So the point being made is, of course, that or Salman Rushdie to expose these things isn't, of course, him making any comment against Islam any more than, say, you or I would to somebody reading uh, Numbers chapter 20 through 21 in regarding the Midianites. It is, of course, a passage that has a lot of difficulty and that we need to clarify, but it's no more a dead weight for Christianity than Islam supposedly should be able to, given that it comes from its own sources. And this is the point. When you're talking to a Muslim, 99.8% of them have no idea what's in their Quran. They have no concern for the information in the Quran because it's not meant to be understood as a source of truth. The word Quran is a Syriac word that literally means recitation, and that's all that it's for. You get good deeds by reciting it in Arabic, and that is essentially as far as it's concerning them. Uh, The Muslim authorities and scholars, the sheikhs and imams and so forth, These are the people that they trust to give them the sort of information, the sort of teaching in those recitations that are relevant to their life in the submission to Allah, the Sharia law, the way to water. And the point being made is this. If you are going to hold a Muslim, speaking from experience, to these sort of authorities, you don't have to accuse them of lying if they just brush it off and say, never heard that, I don't really care. But if, on the other hand, you hold them to something that they assert to you and say, no, that's absolutely false and fabricated, and you can show them chapter and verse, that's going to raise some questions, and that's the sort of thing the Holy Spirit can use. Now, hopefully with Salman Rushdie, he's going to recover, whether he's a Christian or not, and he's not, by the way. We value human life and would never encourage this sort of behavior towards someone who, like we, I was saying earlier, would do the same thing to our Lord Jesus. But the difference between Islam and Christianity is twofold. Firstly, 
our God is capable of defending himself. He doesn't need us to uh, defend his honor, or the honor, ironically, of his most sensitive prophet who murdered people for writing satirical poetry, let alone illustrative stories of things he did in his life. Secondly, when Christians are given the opportunity to defend, we're told not to wage war according to the flesh. What did Paul's letter to the Corinthians say? Our arguments, oh, not our wars, but our arguments are for tearing down strongholds against everything that raises itself against the yeah. truth. And this is the point. Christian warfare exists in the truth because we have it on our side. Islam has to enforce the truth at the edge of the sword because it's not actually there. And this is why our prayers need to be, especially for the Muslim people right now. Because with the advent of the internet and people like Salman Rushdie, these things are becoming more and more popular and more and more accessible, and there has to be a lot of damage control. There are people who are sincere enough in their Islamic faith to read it, to take it seriously, and act accordingly. He struck the neck of the unbeliever, the individual who attacked him. But if on the other hand you run into a Muslim on the street, you're not likely talking to someone who's going to either be A, aware of those verses, or B, willing to act on them. They only adhere to Islam because it's a family issue, that if you're born into a Muslim family, you're a, you're a Muslim. Right. And if you leave your Islamic faith, Muhammad told you to be killed, so they have uh, some vested interest in staying that way. Right. The point being made, though, is this. Talk to human beings before you talk to ideologies. Know their ideology, hold them to their ideology, but make sure you understand the difference. It's the same way that we need to understand ourselves as Christians. Christians oftentimes don't know the Bible as well as they should, and if they don't right. act like Jesus but are associated with Jesus because of the bad things they do, that's on them. But if, on the other hand, you'd say, well, Christians are bad Christians, therefore Muslims are bad Muslims, this guy was just a bad Muslim, time out. Following the direct commands and example historically of his prophet, that's different, and that's why truth matters. Do you think uh, that anyone in Iran would characterize the attacker of Salman Rushdie as a bad Muslim? Not at all. Unless they were, of course, atheists, which are becoming more and more prominent in the Muslim. No, but today. anyone in, in in the Islamic government. Uh, oh no, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, and 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 there's the rub. You know, uh, I, I think we've talked about this before, but there is a triangle of radicalization that has been described by David Wood and others. What is that triangle of radicalization? As a doctorate in philosophy, he sets up this threefold way of identifying someone who would be willing to act on Muhammad's commands, and that requires three things. First, knowledge of Allah's commands. He has to know what the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah expect of him as a Muslim, to consider Muhammad the perfect moral example, and that he, as a man who beheaded 800 Jews in one day for rejecting treaties that he himself violated, that is uh, one of those things. The second is not just knowledge of what Allah commands, but also a willingness to obey said commands. If you're willing to obey something that you know, that's a problem. But also note there is a third side to this triangle. Not only do you have to know Allah's commands, not only do you have to be willing to obey the commands if they came from God, I fit those two categories, but you also need belief in Islam. And when all three of those factors come together, that is what makes a jihadi. That's what makes a terrorist. So if I'm asking the question, well, Sean, you believe 
that uh, Muhammad made these claims, and Sean, you believe that if God made those claims, you should act on them, 100% guilty. But guess what? I don't believe in Islam. Likewise, if someone knows the commands of Allah and believes in Islam but isn't willing to act on them, they're not going to commit terrorism. If someone's willing to obey the commands of Allah and believes that Allah is the true God but doesn't know his commands, he's not going to become a terrorist. All three need to be in place in order for there to be a bloodbath, which yeah. unfortunately we saw in this individual. Yeah, so as far as the, the motive that was involved there, um, yeah, it's tremendous. And, uh, you know, let's face it, uh, Salman Rushdie is uh, no fan of Christianity in any way, shape, or form. Uh, he is uh, famous for having said that religion should be mocked at every opportunity. He was a very equal opportunity uh, individual along that line. But, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing, and we brought it up uh, beforehand, is that, uh, you know, you have the satanic verses. It's this, you know, fictionalized sort of satirical verse uh, or book that has come out. Um, you know, it's kind of so convoluted. It was never made or even attempted to be made in a movie. I don't know how you could do it. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, this created this hue, cry, and uproar, riots uh, across the, the Muslim world, uh, protests at embassies for uh, people even giving the idea of uh, help or shelter to a guy like Salman Rushdie and so on. You know, but it's interesting. I'm old enough to remember uh, when Christians were accused of kind of having a jihadist mindset when uh, Martin Scorsese uh, made a film version of Nico Kakanzakis' book, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, uh, starring Willem Dafoe as uh, Jesus. It opens with a picture of Jesus making crosses as a carpenter uh, so that uh, his Father in heaven would find him so reprehensible he wouldn't force him to be the Messiah. Uh, he says, among other things, uh, to Mary Magdalene, I'm going into the wilderness to be purified. The worst things I've done have been to you. Please forgive me. Uh, this certainly doesn't sound like the Jesus of the Bible. Then in his reverie on the cross, he imagines what it would have been like if he didn't go to the cross. And that's where things really get very, very strange. Uh, among the things that we see are uh, Jesus walking along with his two wives, Mary and Martha, uh, Mary and Martha, fame of Lazarus's sister's fame. Uh, we see him meeting the Apostle Paul and uh, hearing Paul teach about Jesus dying and rising from the dead and uh, how Jesus uh, in the reverie stops Paul and says, why are you telling lies about me to these people? And Paul says, these people are lost and they need hope. If I have to crucify you, I'll crucify you. If I have to resurrect you, I'll resurrect you. I'm glad I met you. Now I can forget you. So, you know, when you have something like this that is so over the top and in your face, blasphemous, right? There because were... we believe, by the way, that Jesus is God, that an insult directed towards him is an insult directed towards God. Interestingly enough, if you insult Muhammad, they view that as worse than an insult towards God. Do the math. But, uh, but the, the, the bottom line is when people would protest this, or say, I really have serious problems with this. Uh, the, the, uh, the response was, oh, well, you're just being intolerant, and you want to bring in a theocracy. Well, no. 
uh, you know, I was on a, a talk show on uh, ABC radio where we were discussing this and they asked me, why are you Christians so upset about all of this? And I said, well, you need to understand that we as believers in Christ don't look at Jesus as some distant uh, historical figure role model who lived in the past. We believe he died and rose from the dead. We believe that he not only is with us according to his promise, but that when we become Christians, Jesus, in fact, takes up residency in our hearts. He is not just a, an admirable religious figure. He is the most important person in our lives, the epitome of perfect love. And so for someone to take the character of Jesus and so distort it, like they did in Last Temptation of Christ or Life of Brian or you name it, uh, and for Christians to have an emotional reaction, I said, it's pretty predictable. You know, for instance, if I were to make a movie that, say, uh, portrayed your mother as a uh, kleptomaniac and a, a uh, 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 an awful uh, scheming individual, uh, contrary to her character, uh, you know, you might be a little bit upset about that. And I'd say, well, why are you upset? It's just art. Well, no, it's because it's about my mom. It's about uh, someone I actually know, and I know it's not true. You see, that's why Christians would have that kind of response. But what is the Christian response to that? And, and you alluded to this verse, and I think it's an important one. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul uh, said this, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, this is verse 3, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is, things you can do in the flesh, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So what's our battle all about? Battle is in the realm of public opinion. It is in the ideas that are circulated throughout the world and whether or not they line up with the truth. We determine truth by what God has revealed, not what we think or the majority thinks. Yeah, and so here you see, you know, in a sense, this is why I think uh, it's kind of open season on mocking and making fun of Christians. And if you spend any time online, you know there's people who are very vicious about that sort of thing. Well, why? Because there's no consequence. No Christian, at least any actual Christian, is going to declare a jihad or go to some place where a, a guy like uh, Salman Rushdie, who made the statement even including Christianity, religion should be mocked at every turn, they're not going to run up on stage and uh, take him out. Uh, why? Because we would be more inclined to want to debate the case on the merits, you know, present the fact of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and see if it stands up in the marketplace of ideas using the weapons of our warfare, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Yeah, so that's, that's where we are in all of this. And I just think it's, uh, it's a terrible thing that this individual, Salman Rushdie, has gone through all of this. We're certainly praying that he uh, pulls through all of this. But, uh, boy, we uh, live in a time where you need to understand something. And this is another uh, really important point to take home from all of this. You know, uh, you, you see the coexist bumper sticker and you hear people saying, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Well, I'm here to guarantee you that young man who ran up on that stage in Chautauqua, New York uh, earlier today and stabbed Salman Rushdie, uh, even following through on Quranic dictates about how you're supposed to do it. He was very, very sincere. He knew he wasn't going to get away with it. 
He knew he was going to be identified. He knew he was going to probably pay the price for his crimes. You've got to be very sincere to do something like that. But you can be sincere and sincerely wrong. You see, the value of sincerity can only be measured on the validity of the object of our belief. And, uh, you know, we challenge people with the idea that uh, you should consider whether Jesus, the historical reality of his life, death, and resurrection, his incomparable teaching, the life that he lived, the death that he died, the evidence for his resurrection from the dead, whether it stands up in the marketplace of ideas. We openly challenge people to do this sort of thing, and uh, we don't uh, throw them in jail or you know, um, uh, you know, take out a knife and attack them if they don't agree with us. We pray for them. And if so, someone ever were to, even in the accusatory, in the name of Jesus Christ, they would be bad Christians because Jesus told his followers to put away their sword in defense of him. The Father right. can defend him. Right. So uh, really important for us to understand that, and really important for us to understand that although our society believes that sincerity is the queen of all virtues, uh, you know, I can sincerely believe that human flight is possible by flapping my arms. I can be so sincere that I'm willing to go to downtown Tucson, go 10 stories up in a building, and start flapping my arms, step out a window on my first uh, uh, part of my journey to flying to L.A. But that's not going to make the sidewalk any softer when my journey falls quite short of my goal. Truth that is not invested, or sincerity not invested in reality, isn't worth having. And so we've got to not only understand the truth, we all have to understand why we believe the truth, and hopefully hold out to this world where relativistic thinking, well, if it's true for you, I guess it's okay. No, it's not okay. Especially when you're being shivved. Yeah, so uh, really interesting events that have uh, really brought to light, I think, a lot of things going on in our culture. All right, as a follow-through, Yari wants to know, in regard to the dreams and visions Muslims are having of Jesus and then converting to Christ, are they accurate? We know that God can do anything, but we have to be careful. Thank you. And then he notes uh, Ezekiel's passage, how shall they hear without a preacher? Well, remember, Yari, the dream wasn't the only part of their testimony, and I encourage you all to do this on your own time. And morethandreams.org, it's spelled just like it ought to be in English, you have the testimonies of countless numbers of Muslims who were in communion communities where they couldn't have heard the gospel any other way. They were completely cut off, completely Sharia-enforced. Anyone who spoke in the name of Isa, and other than the way that he's presented in the Quran, Isa is the pejorative name for Jesus in the Talmud that Muhammad then co-opted and borrowed and put in his Quran. Oops. Anyway, um, they make these uh, observations in saying that this man came to me in a dream, and it, of course, varies in different ways, but it's always clarifying in an environment where they had no reason to think that Jesus was not not only the Messiah, the Quran says as much, but never explains what that means, but that he is God. That is something that would be a capital offense to claim under the penalty of what's called shirk. That's why Muhammad called these satanic verses. He was making partners with Allah. So the point being made is people who had no reason to believe these things in an environment where they would have been put to death for affirming these yeah, things serious consequences. are yeah. having these sort of dreams. It's not based on their input, it's based on an outside source that wasn't already already placed in there. Now, if you watch these testimonies, you'd note I could have summarized that testimony in less than a minute. I just did. But their videos are around 40 to 50 minutes long. Why? Because the story doesn't end with the dream. They went to seek out Christians. 
They went to seek out the scriptures right. that their dreams told them about. They tested all things and then held fast to what is good, even when it cost them something. So remember, Yari, uh, watch the whole testimony. Make sure that you note the fact that it didn't stop with the dream. Every dream, every prophecy, every message, including this one, needs to be tested, and they did. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. All right, uh, here's a question we received by email from Marty, who wants to know, uh, concerning the Great White Throne Judgment, the Bama Seat of Christ, and others, the question is, will believers and or sinners be able to see and hear the judgments of others? Well, this is the fun part about uh, Bible interpretation, Marty, because what we're not told, we can't, of course, say definitively, but we can come to conclusions insofar as, and no farther than, what we are told. So what are we told about the judgments? Obviously, you and I both know Revelation 20, Daniel 12, and plenty of others. Note there will be judgments in which we will stand before the Lord, given an account for our lives, some to resurrection of life, others to judgment. But when we right. look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a special, special type of judgment for those who are in Christ that Revelation 20 further expounds upon. Those whose names are written in the book of life, those who belong to Jesus, won't be cast into the lake of fire. In fact, they'll be rewarded. Right. They won't ultimately have not to save for this life, but the wrath of God. Yeah. But if on the other hand, we take a step back and go, well, like, will we be in a big line or something? Will we have to go in chronological orders, you know, like Adam's up Next. and Eve's up, yeah. and then, you know, yeah. go into the order of uh, Cain and Seth and all those yeah. other people? No, I don't. I can't say that because it's not given to us in the text. But what can I say? Well, there's another passage in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is giving basically the summary statement of how the judgment will go, where we see people being judged individually, but also in groups. So, would that then allow us the opportunity to conclude? Maybe we'll have the chance to hear some of the uh, facts for the not-so-innocent of people we looked up to in our life, but ultimately see them righteous before God. I caution that perspective, though, because in the text itself, we will also be standing before God in judgment, and I think that will fully captivate our attention. So notice these are all speculations, but I'm not going farther than the text itself. Yeah. That's what we need to do when it comes to the information we're not given. And again, do you have the passage in Matthew 25? Uh, I have uh, the uh, Great White Throne Judgment there in uh, Revelation uh, chapter 20, uh, where it talks about uh, the the judgment of the unrighteous. Some people say, well, we, will we be there for that judgment of the unrighteous? You know, I, I just don't even know if I really want to watch that sort of thing. Uh, well, we're going to be where the Lord is. Uh, Jesus said in John 14 that uh, he goes and prepares a place for us, that where I am, there you may be also. So, you know, again, we are told that we will uh, follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Uh, so uh, I think we will definitely be there for that. But as far as uh, what Matthew 25 says about uh, judgment, about judging the nations, uh, I believe contextually, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31 says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of glory. All nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one for another as a shepherd divides sheep from his goats. He will say to the sheep on his right hand, uh, come you blessed of my father into the kingdom, inherit the kingdom which was prepared for you from the foundation of the world 
I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, did we, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And so on. It says, and the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. He does the same thing to the goats, but says, uh, you know, go into the eternal, the uh, destruction uh, prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, so, you know, when we see this, we can ask ourselves a question. Is this another view of the great white throne judgment? I don't think so. I think this is going to be the judgment that is going to take place when Jesus immediately returns to earth. We're going to be with him at that particular time. When it talks about the judgment, you know, I was hungry and you gave me food, thirsty and you gave me to drink, naked and, you, and, uh, and homeless you took me in. I think it is referring to the fact that those who are truly converted during the tribulation period, that final seven-year period of time, are going to know that the Jewish people, Jesus' brothers, if you will, are uh, enemies number number one and one a as far as the antichrist goes and to take them in and to offer them uh, any kind of comfort or solace would be putting your life on the line and so when jesus talks about their their faith he talks about these events as being evidence of the fact that they had faith and trust in him they loved jesus and so they loved his people and so i think it's likely that what we see in matthew chapter 25 is uh, what's going to happen when Jesus returns. The armies of the Antichrist have been defeated, but not all human beings are wiped out. You have tribulation survivors. You also have some individuals who are part of the armies that uh, uh, serve the Antichrist, who probably threw down their weapons and said, forget it, I'm not going to fight this guy. Well, they're still going to get their judgment at that time. Those who belong to the Lord will be able to enter into the kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Those who don't know the Lord will be immediately judged at that point, but uh, will await uh, the end of the tribulation period, or I should say the uh, millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign, where they will get their day in court described in Matthew chapter 20. All right, so note, we're not going farther than the text would allow, but we are allowing for conclusions that are within what we do know. And if something is what we do know, it's from the text, not from our speculation. Yeah, and if you're worried, I guess maybe if the subtext of that question is, boy, you know, if I sit there and I see these people being judged, you know, is this going to, you know, like really bother me to see them judged in all of this? Well, uh, read Revelation chapter 15. There is a song that is sung in heaven. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord. True and righteous are your judgments. Uh, who will not fear your name and glorify you? For your righteous judgments have been made manifest. When we see life through God's eyes, we're going to realize God never gets it wrong. God, God never has a bad day in court. He's never going to condemn the innocent, nor allow the guilty to get off scot-free. Everybody's going to get exactly what they deserve at that particular point. So whether we have the opportunity to be able to look in on individual cases or whether we will just be present there as the Lord uh, judges the unrighteous at the great white throne judgment, uh, we really don't know. We can't really say more than, as you said, what the, the Bible actually says. And if you're wondering, well, when it says, depart from me, you who committed lawlessness, or you 
fed me and I, when I was hungry and thirsty and so forth. There's no nuance in the Greek that would suggest an individual or a group. It would no, be just communicated really. just as well as it would in English. Yeah. Uh, question from Job, fun name. Uh, why in one gospel does it say both thieves reviled Jesus, then in another gospel, one of the thieves yielded his heart to Jesus and asked him to remember him? Well, uh, thank you for the question, Job, and kudos to your mother for awesome baby names. Uh, Matthew 27, of course, is the one where we have the first example of this being basically just at straightforward, mentioning the two thieves reviling Jesus. Let me make sure I have the passage correct. Uh, we stress on accuracy in this program, so I guess you can sue the pause. But it is Matthew 27, if you can give me another moment. Verse 44, it reads, that even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him and did the same thing. Now, full stop there, the focus goes back to Jesus. We aren't told about anything else that the two thieves did apart from the fact that they were there. But if we go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23... I've got that if you want it. Yeah, go ahead. It says uh, in verse uh, 39, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing we are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, you will be with me. I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, you started in verse 39. Why did you do that? Because that's the passage that mentions the two thieves reviling Jesus. But how far does Matthew go? It only mentions the reviling from both of them. Now, in verse 32, what does it say of the same chapter? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one in his right hand and the other on the left. If we're going to note, as far as the details that Matthew gives us, that would be the full stop as far as Matthew and Luke's accounts perfectly lining up with each other. Right. This would be an addition of detail. Now, how much time would note between verses 34 and 39, given the fact that Jesus was on the cross for about three hours? Well, six hours total, three hours before the sky turned dark. Apparently that happened before that particular event. So in the span of... Three hours. Yeah, in the span of time, can someone change their position? Uh, oftentimes they do. There, is that allowed? Yeah. You know, one could start out, and especially when you stop and think, what was the physical and emotional state of somebody who has just been put upon a cross? Arguably the most torturous form of execution ever known to man. If you've ever been around people that are in serious pain, Oftentimes, they will lash out at anyone and everyone around them because they are so fearful, they're so angry, their nerve endings are just on fire. They can't do anything about it, and so frustration overflows, and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you can imagine that in especially the initial stages of all of this, lashing out and, and just, oh, just being so enraged at what was happening there, how it would be very possible for both thieves at the beginning 
to be reviling Jesus or, you know, taking their cues from the rest of the crowd. Uh, however, after a, a period of time, we're not told how much, apparently one of the thieves reconsiders. Uh, you know, to say that that's a contradiction would be kind of like saying from my personal testimony, well, you know, I understand that at one time you like to uh, argue with Christians and put them down for believing in God, and you believed it was for faith in God was for little old ladies and people that didn't sleep well at night. But now you're turning around and saying you believe in God and and that it's not for little old ladies, and oh, I guess it is, or for people who sleep well, I guess it is. But uh, it's not uh, anything that just has to do with meeting some kind of uh, personal psychological need. It's reality and fact. How can those two things be true at once? Same way that it's true that at one time in history I was five foot even, and today I am six foot three. Time passes, people can grow. And they change. So there you go. All right, question from Isaiah, uh, following up on the issue of judgment. He wants to know a bit about the age of accountability, specifically of those perhaps who have been miscarried to maybe the last child born in the millennial kingdom. Do they grow up and make a decision for Christ or stay babies and children? I don't know about that dilemma. Because if you stayed babies and children, that wouldn't affect whether or not you had to come to a decision for Christ. That wouldn't. There's nothing yeah, in the people, Bible. Yeah, people wonder though if they they say a, a child is lost through miscarriage, will that uh, child be a baby in heaven? And sometimes they, I've heard people try to comfort others by saying, "Well, you know, it'll be a baby in heaven, and you'll get the opportunity to raise that child." In heaven. No, that's not the Bible. That's Joseph Smith. He actually said they'll remain babies in perpetuity, sitting on thrones as babies, which is a hilarious image in my mind. But anyway, um, regarding the age of accountability, though, I think that's the most substance to this. Obviously, we fall back on what we do know, not what we can't, and what is the most fundamental basics when it comes to the judgment of God. We go to Genesis chapter 18, I believe. Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? Right. So if we're asking ourselves these difficult questions and saying, okay, if someone didn't have the opportunity to hear the gospel, whether at stages of infancy, fetal development, or maybe later in life, but we're in a position like those with more than dreams, and physically died without ever hearing the gospel. What about the one who never heard? Well, I just roll my eyes and go, okay, you have heard, so why are you dodging the bullet? Secondly, when it comes to God, I think he's aware of those factors and will include it in the verdict. But if you impose God's injustice, or I guess your injustice on God's nature, that's a problem as well. Let's take a step further, though, and ask, regarding the age of accountability, what reasons people have to think there's that capstone of grace where God would cover over somebody. Obviously, we can't set down a particular date, but for those who are in the infancy realm of questions, we would usually go to 2 Samuel, where David is... Um, yeah, 2 yeah, Samuel chapter 12, uh, where uh, after David's adulterous affair with uh, Bathsheba, she gives birth to the child. Uh, Nathan the prophet tells David that the child is uh, going to die. Uh, and uh, again, uh, we are told that David fasted and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of the house rose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, when the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw his servants were whispering, he perceived the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He's dead. 
So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went into his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child when he was alive. When the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. That's significant. Yeah. So, you know, again, David's hope in the midst of all this, a hope, by the way, that got him off of his face, that brought him to a place of worship, that uh, restored his strength, was the confidence that he would see that child again. He would go to that child, but the child being dead would not come to David. And did David, the greatest king of Israel in a spiritual sense, debate as far as militarily, the sweet psalmist of Israel, a man according to 1 Kings, was a prophet of God who spoke by the Holy Spirit, also confirmed in the book of Hebrews, had an expectation of going to hell? No. Okay, so he had an understanding of the justice and of the nature of God, that because this child died, not because of his actions or his sin, but because of mine, there would be a grace offered and a measure offered to this specific circumstance, that in that case, what? This child is going to heaven. Now, can we conclude from that, that every child is going to heaven? We can't but we can fall back on the nature of God and note this is an example of that in action. Yeah, you know, when it comes to the debate on the age of accountability, uh, you know, some people say, well, what about the bar mitzvah uh, celebration of, of the Jews? You know, you get to a certain age and then you become a son or a daughter of the covenant and only then are you responsible for your sins. Well, okay, but uh, where do you set an age limit for that? Uh, you know, the, the, the bottom line is this, nobody is ever going to miss heaven because they weren't uh, developmentally uh, able to understand spiritual concepts. Nobody is ever going to miss heaven uh, because, uh, say, they didn't have the mental capacity to grasp the gospel. God's default position, we are told in Scripture in Second Peter chapter 3, is that he's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, as soon as we are able to hear and understand the gospel, God holds us accountable for saying yes or no to a saving relationship with him. That is the deciding factor. That's what is the difference between an eternity in the presence of God and an eternity separated from that. But the bottom line is this. God will get it exactly right. Uh, nobody is going to say, well, you know, I, I just don't think you handled that deal with, uh, say, uh, babies who were stillborn or, or again, uh, babies who died uh, from sudden infant death syndrome. God is going to get that exactly right. And my two cents worth is, uh, especially inferring from what David had to say, uh, I think uh, we can know that God is going to show his compassion and his mercy. And if we have an inkling of compassion and mercy in situations like that, how much more the perfect, true, and living God? Yeah, so fall back on what you don't know, not, or what you do know, not what you don't. Right. Get the letters right there. Anyway, uh, we got about 30 seconds. Do we have anything else we want to clarify before we have to sign off? Yeah, uh, just a uh, uh, encouragement to you, and it kind of dovetails a bit with what we do here on uh, this program. Uh, Sunday at Calvary Christian Fellowship at Tucson, we're going through the book of Luke, and uh, we're going to be going through one of the most remarkable up-close and personal encounters with the resurrected Jesus you'll find in the entire Word of God. The famous uh, account of the two disciples encountering Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And we're going to take a look at it with a look from 
a bit of a different lens as far as application goes. What we're going to see is that we can take a look at what it means for us personally to have a direct encounter with Jesus and how to evaluate whether it's the real deal or it's the figment of someone's imagination. A lot of people out there claiming to have these experiences. We're going to see what a real one is all about and how God can work in a similar way in our lives. God bless you. We'll see you all next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.